All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF Welcome. How are you? Everything okay? Did you get through the weekend? How was your Easter? Did you do candy? Did you do eggs? Did you do Pesach? How was your Pesach? Is everybody all right? For those of you who are actual believers, for those of you who are half believers, for those of you who are just hanging on to the cultural traditions of whatever religion you may have practiced or cling to, kinda, as you get older, for family reasons and for the children, what's happening? Baron Vaughn is here. Baron Vaughn is a comedian, and also he is a uh, featured on the new show, Grace and Frankie. Moshe Kasher stopped by. He's been on the show before. He's got a new series coming out, Problematic, with Moshe Kasher. That premieres Tuesday, April 18th on the uh, Comedy Central. Uh, those are the guests today. On my last show, uh, Buster Kitten had uh, pushed a screen out and gotten out. And it was upsetting. I like that guy. I like Buster. I've been through a lot of cats and a lot of cat issues, but uh, I was starting to like him. He's a crazy little fuck. He's a little demon. I I actually assumed because of the timing that he showed up and also just because of his very nature that there was a good chance that he was an actual demon. I, I'm not convinced that he isn't, uh, but uh, but nonetheless, he got out. I, I went outside and I called and called and then he was under the deck and uh, took a little cajoling but uh, but I got him. I grabbed him and I brought him in. Now, here's the part of the story that I didn't want to tell you because I felt like an idiot. So I, I thought I nailed the screen in properly. And the next day I took a nap and then I went out back and I noticed that the entire window was off. And I was like, you got to be fucking kidding me. And then I walked around front and I knew Buster was out. But then I saw Monkey bolt under the fence. I'm like, what? The, are you fucking serious? The old guy's out too. So now I went around back and Monkey came around back. I'm like, what are you doing? Come in the house. And he was like, no. And he went in the house, which was rare, but uh, he came right back in. But no Buster. And this time I thought, well, that's it. I mean, that's it. He, he, he wants to live outside. Then I guess he'll be an indoor-outdoor cat. I don't know if he's coming back. He came from the outside. Maybe he's returning to the outside, sort of like throwing a fish back. But uh, I didn't really want to accept that. But I, you just don't know what cats. So for the whole day, I was like, well, fuck him. Fuck it. And I know some cat purists and some you know, big-hearted cat people are going to be like, well, you asshole. You know, you should have secured the screen. Well, I thought I did. You know, and I, it's not easy for me to admit this. You know, in the middle of, a, you know, fearing a nuclear holocaust, you know, I got to worry about Buster the cat and also go out and do comedy and balance, a, you know, a lot of things in life. Two, I guess, two main things this weekend was the missing cat and the uh, the terror of uh, nuclear war. And, it, you know, they, they kind of were, you know, up and down in, in uh, you know, taking up importance in my brain. So a whole night goes by and then a day and nothing. Then I drove up the driveway and Sarah and I in the car, we thought we saw him. We kind of did. And then we ran out and then we called for him. We heard him meow. So we knew he was still alive. So I put some food out and then I went and did comedy. And then this morning which would be Sunday morning. I get up, I go call him. I was sitting outside last night, you know, trying to shaking mice, throwing things, doing everything, putting food out by myself in the driveway there. And this morning I go out and I call him and I hear him. Yeah. He's got a very weird, almost, you know, high pitched uh, meow. And then I'm like, where are you? What's happening? 
And then nothing. I don't hear him. I, I look around. I call and I go in the house and I come out back and there he is just standing there. I walk out. And I'm like, come on, let's go. And he runs off. And I'm like, well, fuck. All right. This is how this is going to go. And then I step outside. I'm going, Buster, Buster, what the hell? Come on, man. With that tone. I try not to get angry. And then he just runs by me and goes under the house. So now I know he's under the house, but I don't know if I'm going to get him in the house. There's nothing you can do with cats. This patience and, and hope. And I'm sitting there and I'm calling him and I'm shaking mice and I'm putting food out and I'm on the ground. And uh, nothing. And then right when I'm about to give up, at least, you know, I, I'm, look, I'm glad I knew where he was. But, uh, but I, I, you know, I was like, all right, well, this is just, at least he's around and I'll just feed him out here. Right at the point of, of giving up, he just walks out from under the house, covered in spider webs, and he uh, comes up to me and just, I pet him. And I go, you're done? Is Rumslinga over? Are we, are we good? Are you a grown-up now? Or what's happening? And he rolled over on his back, and I pat him, and I took him in the house. And uh, that's the Buster saga. So I was hoping that he, I would have a closure like this, because if I just came back with the, uh, he got out again, because I'm an idiot who didn't fix the fucking screen right, I would have been embarrassed. That you know, I would have been embarrassed, but uh, he's in the house for now. Oh, the other thing I want to share with you that I thought was interesting and, and exciting and kind of wild is I don't know how regular a listener you are, but when Jeff Ross was on the 800th show, he talked about his family's catering business in New Jersey. You know, for, for years and years, since the 40s or whatever, it was a place called Clinton Manor that his family had been in the catering business for decades in New Jersey. And so the other day, like Friday or Saturday, I get a text from my mother. Hi, Mark. Listening to Jeff Ross interview. Great. Do you know I was married at the Clinton Manor? Guess his family was to caterers. Funny, huh? Mom. My parents were married at Clinton Manor, which means I called Jeff immediately. He's like, no fucking way. He said, my Uncle Murray probably made the fruit salad. The Murray that we talked about with the Mel Brooks story probably made the fruit salad for my parents' wedding. So now I'm trying to get hold of my parents' wedding album so Jeff can sort of uh, reminisce about, you know, the, the, the place that he grew up in working and his family was involved with. The only problem is, is that my parents are no longer together and uh, the wedding album seems to be missing. I think my brother has it. Somebody has to have it. Big black and white pictures uh, of my dad kissing my mom pre-nose job at the Clinton Manor. And Jeff's like, maybe my grandparents are somewhere in the background. My Uncle Murray's somewhere. Cause they, yeah, I, I'm going to try to find it. I thought that was a, a, an odd coincidence. But not, not so odd. You know, New Jersey's New Jersey. So Moshe Kasher, I've had him on the show before. I tend to be antagonistic with him, but for no real reason. I think I project onto poor Moshe, but he's a bright guy, funny guy, and he's got this new series, Problematic with Moshe Kasher. As I said, premieres April 18th on Comedy Central. This is me and Moshe having a little chat. First of all, Moshe Kasher, I have not seen you in, in years, and... 
I believe you are, are you still married? You got married? Yeah, I'm still married. You're still married. That's holding up to yeah. Natasha. It's not Ruggiero. going well. We're having deep problems. Oh really? No, we're good. I mean, sorry, that would have been a better interview. No, no, but I mean maybe minor problems? No. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, you're both uh, comedians. I did that once. We how had, long have you been married? Uh, about a year, a year and a half. All right. Well, let's see how you go at more, three. More to three. come. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, no, I love her. I love you. I know you're touring together, which that's uh, that's got to be great, huh? Wait, it feels sarcastic when you say it like that. Wait, you're... <laughs> <laughs> it was completely sarcastic. Uh, it is great. The road is so lonely. I know. And so if you take away the loneliness and substitute it with your lover, I mean... Yeah. It's great. Well, that I mean, that seems to be the good side of it. So you're saying there's no downsides to touring with your wife on a double bill? I don't see what the issue is. Uh, what, a bruised ego when people are there to see her? Yeah. I mean, nah. But come on. Let's, let's talk it out. <laughs> I don't feel that way. You don't? No, because I never felt in competition. I've never understood people that feel in competition with their female comedian partner because it's like, we're not... I, we're not going you're for the ki- same role. Well, you're kind of girly. I mean, on some, sometimes. <laughs> but wait, <laughs> that actually reminds me of a story that does relate to you. Uh, because I remember, speaking of the comic's ego and jealousy, okay. I, heard about a, uh, I heard about a casting for Glow, mm-hmm. and it was for a woman. Like, obviously, because yeah. you're the only, aren't you like the only man yeah, in the cast? Yeah, pretty much. It had nothing to do with There's it. There's one just, other guy. It was a woman that had been cast as a wrestler, and I, yeah. got, and I felt a pang of jealousy. Oh, really? I was like, that role is not available to me. The woman's wrestling. Well, you know, they, they always do that thing where it's like, hey, they don't know what they're looking for. Uh-huh. Yeah, just go in for it. Yeah, but it's like the guy's supposed to be 90. Yeah, it's a it's, an African-American. Yeah, but they don't know. They're, it's one of those parts. Can go either way, which I guess is true sometimes. Yeah, I, I once got a I once got a role that was they were they were trying to go diverse and then they decided to go with me instead. Yeah, that, that was a nice feeling to finally crush the p- person of oh. color beneath my feet. Was oh, nice. do Actually, you know it was the, you know it was a person of color? No, I just oh. know that they were like they want to go diverse and oh. then they were like it turns out it was you that they wanted. Yeah. So what what have you been doing for the last couple of years? I know that you like I, it was weird because you're one of those guys where I'm like. What's he going to do in show business? That's a nice thing to say. Yeah. yeah. I always wondered uh, that about you too, Mark. I was I like, where's this going? <laughs> Believe me, we're not the only one. Yeah. yeah I was that, was, that was my question for 25 years. I didn't think it would be in the garage. No, but, but because like, were you going to be like, were you going to do a sitcom or were you like in, in stand up when you get into it, you're either going to find something to host or something to star in or you're going to write. Right. I mean, that's it. So, like, you know, when I started hearing that you were doing more hosting stuff and then this thing evolved, I was very happy that you found your your path. Well, thanks, man. I, yeah, I feel really good about this. I, I feel like I'm... I, I remember there was an announcement for a show that was a, a show about, like, internet comments. Yeah. Some, some, like, you know, some new show that was coming out. And I, right. And speaking of jealousy, I didn't feel jealousy. I felt like, oh, I don't think I would want to do that sh- show. I right. don't think I would take that job. And I feel like that's a big marker of evolution in a... Oh, definitely. Career to saying, say, saying no is a great marker of evolution in anybody. Like knowing that you're like, no, nah, it's not for me. Yeah, right. I mean, I didn't say no. They didn't offer it to me. Oh. Maybe I would have subjugated that feeling sure, immediately. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. This would be a different conversation <laughs> had they offered it to me. Those fuckers. Right. I would be on here going, dude, here's the thing. Internet comments are wacky. And I'm here to talk about that wackiness. I mean, I remember once I got offered an audition. <laughs> it was for a show that was described as it's like Tosh.0, oh, yeah. but instead of funny videos, you're commenting on footage of people playing the video game Halo. 
<laughs> that's so, that's pretty specific. Yeah, and like I don't even know what that is. It's like Tosh point oh, except they took so, away the fun part, and it's just, <laughs> just you for, commenting on stuff. It, well, it's not just Halo audience. <laughs> it's it's all that's pretty much it's a pretty niche audience, but maybe everybody plays that except for me. And I wanted it. I wanted the job. I remember I went in and I got called back, and the casting the, the producer called me, and he goes, "Okay, you're re- you're really close." You yeah. Know? You know, you're. Re- it's just you know, it's down. It's just it's down to you and a couple other people. Yeah. But we want you to be like, like just a little cooler. You know, just like <laughs> be a little cooler. And I'm thinking like, don't be all you know, <laughs> intense and like you know, slightly n- n- aggressively neurotic. I go. I, I'm thinking to myself like, I'm the coolest dude. I'm the coolest dude around. Yeah. I mean, I'm so cool. How cool? Do, what kind of cool are you yeah, talking about? Look at my pants. And he literally said, you know, like cool, like. Like a kind of like a Greg Kinnear character. <laughs> you know, right. Greg Kinnear cool. The classic. Dickish and detached. King of cool Greg Kinnear. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think he's maybe referring to like a cool character, not like hip cool. Yeah, I guess so. It was just a funny thing that I was like, oh, I could be Greg Kinnear. You need Greg Kinnear? I, I've been described as a young Greg Kinnear. Yeah. Well, that was interesting, though, because in the talk zone, in the talk format, like he was, uh, he very early on, you know, was seemed like this cookie cutter kind of guy. But a lot of dudes who, like my friends, took a, a shine to him. They liked him because he was, you couldn't read him. He was snarky and, and seemingly seething under this exterior mm-hmm. that was, uh, uh, that seemed pretty, you know, mainstream, you know, middle of the road. Right. So he, you know, so he, like, he really became this kind of weird uh, uh, force because I guess it's cool, but it was more like this snarky detachment. Did he have a talk show? Yeah, dude. That's how he started. I didn't know that. That's why they they were referring to it. He hosted later, and then I don't know which came first. Talk Soup was, um, I guess that sort of made him a star. But he started in that slot that was like after Letterman. Yeah, well, anyway, my show is called uh, Looking Back on Greg Kinnear. And uh-huh. it's an, it's an hour-long talk good show idea. where we just talk Greg Kinnear. That's you know? great. Yeah. Not too specific. Everybody will enjoy it. No, it'll be cool. <laughs> <laughs> talking Greg, it's it's, <laughs> it's on AMC. It's called Talking Greg, uh-huh. and it's after Talking Dead. Great, and we just talk Greg Kinnear. Yeah, and then like when you run out, you can talk Greg Proops. Yep, Greg can talk Greg, and then we'll have Greg Barrett, um, and Greg Kin. Oh, great! Yeah. He'll bring the guitar. Just yeah. close with him. Wait on that. No, he's actually actually he's not doing well. Apparently, his life is in jeopardy. <laughs> Mark, it's been great being here. Thank you so and that's much. That's the kind of wit you're going to see on the new show. <laughs> What's it called? <laughs> it's called problematic, and it's uh, it's talk, but it's a little bit more substantive. What we're actually trying to do is like somehow recreate daytime talk, but through a co- in a Comedy Central. Break okay. it down for me. What are the segments? What is the structure of the show? Pitch so, it. Okay, so it's uh, the top is a conversation with an expert. Last week we had we talked cultural appropriation with Kenya Barris, the creator of Blackish, and then the second. Well, act- back up. Yes, sir. Uh, can you like? I'm sure I understand what you're saying, but I'd like to know the definition of cultural appropriation, please. Okay, so thank you. Cultural. The 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 literal definition of cultural appropriation is what uh, you used to do on stage. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Got it. That's a literal definition, is what Moshe used to do on stage. You got to know a lot about me to know to get it. Moshe was basically a, uh, a disgruntled uh, white rapper. I was happy, and everything was good, and I was happy to open for you. And Were you, though? Yeah. Why do, my, why do I think that, maybe it's just because you were so intense that I, I mistake that 
for Well, for you're unhappy. such a mellow guy. When you see someone intense, you're like, what is this? No, I'm very <laughs> intense. And when I see someone more intense than me, I'm like, that guy's got problems. <laughs> I did have problems. I'm right. feeling really good. Now. No, you look seem good. So, oh, so that's it. Literally, cultural appropriation is, it goes either way. The, it's uh, the idea that like, yes, white people borrowing, you know, But it's specifically or, white people. No, no, no. I would say that actually the theme of the episode that was interesting was that really what it comes down to is, and, and, and most people roll their eyes, at uh, mo- a lot of white people yeah. roll their eyes at the cultural appropriation conversation, me included, big uh-huh. time. I've had a real difficult time with Where this. Where does it go? Why? Because it's absurd. It's absurdist a- areas are absurd, right? So when you go like, you shouldn't, uh, you know, dress like another culture. You go, well, everybody's everybody's wearing jeans, so that's right. totally insane. I mean, like, we're not all minors. Yeah, exactly. J- j- should Japan, who is now the center of the denim creating uh, world, yeah. should they? Is that inappropriate? Yeah, and, yeah, I get you that. Say yes. <laughs> no, no, I say that. That's like that's that one's a little broad. The issue is, I, I think that it's it it becomes painful for people when there's the the white power dynamic involved. In right. It. Uh, and so that was really the theme of the of the night was... Wait, it becomes painful when Nazis are rapping? No, what, what I'm you... saying is basically, <laughs> uh, you know, like the, the automatic thing you can do is you could go, oh, well, what about that? This was actually the theme of the the outro monologue. It's like, you see a black dude in khakis and go, look, that's cultural appropriation too. But there's a differential because of power. Okay. And as I said, white power, right. which I never thought I'd get to say on TV. Right. Right. So, you know, I, that was the theme of the- of Also the, called white privilege, or are we separating? I mean, I'm not separating at all. Uh, I, that I, seems to be a semantic- uh, Semitic. Uh, it's a semitic argument, <laughs> which all arguments are semitic when you think about it. If they go on too long, <laughs> well, yeah. If you, <laughs> if you argue, if you are a non-Jew and you argue for a long time, that's actually cultural appropriation. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people who who refuse to admit they're wrong, or or no, it would be a, just sort of like vague arguing about bullshit about food. If you argue about food well, for heard, too long, yeah, I've that's heard a Semitic argument. I've heard about some people having allergies, and I'm like, that's ours. That's yeah. our thing. Oh, really? That's actually inappropriate Do for you, you to have. Yeah. A, I don't have allergies. Yeah, or just no. being neurotic. Yeah. Okay, so that so, seems like pretty heady shit, man. It's heady shit. And this week we're talking how the internet, speaking of heads, is how the internet is changing your brain. We have Nick Carr coming on who wrote the book The Shallows, which is like a uh, basically a deconstruction of how information, technology, and social media is changing the way our brains function and operate. I like this stuff. Yeah. So every no, I know that, yeah. Every week's a different topic. And, basically, and this is where it's going to be on? Comedy Central. Wow, it sounds a little heady for Comedy Central. I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> that's the big risk huh that's the roll of the dice i haven't cashed out my 401k yet right uh no i think that comedy central like everybody else is realizing that people are thirsty for real conversation i mean you're a, a classic example of yeah that. P- podcasting and you i would say as sort of maybe even the epicenter of it is a prove out that people care about big conversations sure and if i think tv is now going like oh we should catch up to that well no i, I i'm happy that you're doing that on a network that that seems to I don't really know what the audience is or what the identity the identity of Comedy Central is, but if it is young people and you're having these conversations, it's provocative and, and hopefully it catches on. Well, speaking of that first, thank you, by the way, and speaking of that first realization that I didn't want to do the internet comment show, yeah. it's like I would rather fall on my sword to do a show like this than be be successful doing a show that made me want to die every day. Yeah, no, I've, I've done one of those. Have it, you? Yeah, but it didn't, it didn't catch on. I was lucky. So, but how do you... How do you keep it buoyed? I mean, like, why not HBO? Uh, 
Um, well, you they tried. They didn't offer. Right. Well, no. I mean, Comedy Central. I didn't try. Comedy Central came to me and was like, "I would like. We'd like to do a show with you. What do you have in mind?" And I, me and uh, this guy Alex Blagg, who was one of the creators of At Midnight, were yeah. like trying to. We came up with this idea, and it's connected loosely to my podcast, where we have the Hound Tall discussion series. Yeah. Where we have an expert on, and we kind of riff over that person, sort of like a TED Talk meets Mystery Science Theater. It's right. Like a panel of comics. Yeah. Uh, do that. So, so we kind of wanted to find a an intellectual middle ground between At Midnight and The Daily Show, right? The Daily Show being hyper-political, At Midnight being hyper-fun, right. something that would occupy the space in the middle. And it might be it might be teetering a little bit more towards the heady, but there is a lot of fun. We've had a lot of fun and a lot of really real silliness. Like Ryan Singer can come on after a conversation about cybersecurity and how you have to have two-factor authentication. Right. And we can talk about jerking off to a con artist in the Philippines and we can all have a good time. Yeah, the, you got to find that, the funny real stuff. Yeah. So, okay, so you set up, you, you have the conversation, then what's segment two? So segment two has generally been some sort of prove out, right? So like yeah. some sort of real time. Uh, okay. You know, like you go, you hit the streets or you find examples. No, an in-studio thing. Like, for example, we did one of our test shows that we are going to do for the real thing is that we did the dark web and we have an expert come and sort of deconstruct what the dark web is. And then in act two, we actually put the, the Tor browser up on the screen and show the viewer at home how you can log on to the dark web. How the you dark can... web is where all the black market business happens? Yeah, but a lot more than that. That's one of the interesting things about the dark web is that... Everybody... What is it exactly? Well, everybody thinks about the dark web like it is uh, the place where you go for child pornography. And oh. that's sort of its alpha and its omega, right? You right. go there to buy heroin or child pornography. Right. But it's like way deeper than that, right? It, all it really is, is it is um, an anonymized browser called Tor, yeah. which, is, which is a system. It's basically like Google Chrome, except that no one can track you because your phone, your computer has an IP address that yeah. says, this is Mark Maron's place. Right. Uh, this is who's scrolling through all of this stuff. Right. Mark Maron is looking at boots. We know he likes boots. Right, right. But it's say you didn't want people to know your boot buying habits. You would go to the, download the Tor browser and you would look for boots there. Right, but but that's not that important to you, Mark. You're not a you're not a criminal, or you don't live in an oppressive regime. But so it's not for boots; it's for bad things. No, because suppose you lived. In, oh, right, China. In China, right. exactly. And all you want to do is get on Facebook and say Chi the Chinese government has been repressing me. Right. Well, you would go to the Facebook browser, the the dark web dark web Facebook browser. Right. You would take Tor. The interesting thing about Tor is that the way that it works is your IP address is hidden, and you log on to a computer somewhere in some other country that a volunteer has has set up a, a server that some ip address far off in some other land has set up which then pings to another ip address that another volunteer in another country has ping 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 all around the world so there's no way to find you so yes it is used for nefarious fucked up things but yeah. also it's used for journalists to dump stories uh so that people can, uh, like government officials in the Trump administration or the Obama administration right. can dump stories in the Tor browser so that journalists can find them. And one of the more interesting- good for whistleblowers, you're saying. It's great for whistleblowers. It's great for people that live in repressive regimes. And, yeah. it, and it is great for people that want to buy heroin uh, without leaving their house. In bulk, yeah. <laughs> in bulk with reviews. There's reviews, Mark. It's so Tor funny. reviews. It's really, it looks like <laughs> Amazon. It does? It's straight up. It says high quality China white heroin. And then you go in and it's like, Yummy product. The guy was real respectful. Sent it to my house. Mm-mm, good. Really? Yes. And that's it's really funny because it's 
everybody's anonymized, right? So right. there's no way to verify that the drug dealer you're buying the drugs from is huh. legit. So the only thing that you can go on are reviews. Right. If this person has 100 reviews, then he'll stay in business with his heroin selling business. So what ends up happening is you can buy really good drugs. Right. It's the best place to buy drugs in the world. The oh problem my. is you have to have them shipped to your home address. <laughs> I don't know why somebody would do Maybe that. Maybe the P.O. boxes. That's a good time for a mailbox, et cetera. Yeah, <laughs> et cetera is heroin. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, so, that sounds pretty good. So then you do that, and, and then you close with a monologue? Or? Close with some sort of like final. Oh, but I forgot a, the most important part. The panel. There's a panel? No, the third act is Phil Donahue style. We're in the audience, and people are asking questions on camera. So anybody that wants to come of, to a taping can come and be on camera and ask a question and get in get of on the, the guests or guests yeah of the guests and just about the topic in general so like when we did cultural appropriation we had a, we invited a bunch of people we invited a local native american community leader and he spoke about what you know cultural appropriation how it affected native communities and then we had this guy who has a uh, taco stand in downtown la called yeah. white, white boy tacos yeah and he talked about why white people sell tacos in los angeles of all places what's going on with the, are you still doing the podcast with brennan with Neil, no. We stopped doing it about a year ago. No. And I mean, look, this is going to sound very weird, but I really do think, I know that we started, I really feel like that podcast was important. Yeah. And uh, we, I, I think that we started a lot of people's podcasts. A lot of our old guests uh, now have their own podcasts that are really successful and thriving. Yeah. And, and, I, and I don't think it's not because of us. <laughs> Well, like, yeah. Well, I mean, well, first of all, I, I'm glad you feel that way about yourself and your <laughs> I just, contribution. I, sounds but, terrible. I, I, no, no, I it's nice. It. But like it, almost everyone has a podcast. No, I know. And this is going to get into some weird territory, but like- Probably not. Our podcast was, as you know, it was me and Neil, two white guys interviewing black celebrities. Right. Right. And I, when we started, it was, it was years ago. It was five, yeah, five years ago. And a lot of the guests had never been on, a, a lot of our guests had never been on or even really- we're really, really familiar with podcasting sure. and at the other end of it a lot of them were like this is awesome we should start them and there's a lot uh, one of our own and a lot of the podcasts right now that are really popular and new and, and exciting are former guests now i don't know if we had anything no it's nice it, no of course well no cool. i mean the fact that you, a lot of times people come and they're like oh i can do this do you know what yeah, i mean like yeah, it, it, yeah, there, yeah. there is a freedom to it and a simplicity to it and, and are you still doing the hound's tooth is that what it is i'm doing yeah hound tall it's a bad name. hound what hound tall bad name i mean i'm just gonna hound tall like a tall dog like a tall hound yeah, i don't dog. know what the fuck you were thinking it's with that a name. bad nothing it was a spoon it's a spoonerism which i found out a what it's spoonerism which is like a word that like hound tall town hall oh okay right yeah Listen, oh i get it i get I'm, it i didn't like, even remember know earlier when it was obnoxious how proud i was of myself I'm the opposite of that with it when it comes to the name of this podcast. But I, I actually asked the people, that the listeners, like, should I change the name? Should I just call yeah. it the Moshe Cashers Town Hall Series? And they all said that we've come to love this terrible name. All of them. Oh, good. The ones that contacted well, me. Well, it's memorable. <laughs> yeah, it's something. Yeah. It's, uh, but yeah, I still do that one monthly. And I love it. That's it's monthly? Yeah, it's monthly. Okay. And that's why I uh, started this, this show. Is because I did this monthly podcast where I was guaranteed to have, I'm sure you relate to this, guaranteed to have a good conversation at least once a, once right, a month. I, right. I have had quantum physicists on and I've had, uh, you know, historians on and, and psychologists and, and uh, intellectuals. And it's just really fun for me to have that kind of conversation, especially from my approach, which is kind of like this, this, this sort of buffoon Really? I, you think you're a buffoon? I think that the it's like highbrow, lowbrow. You, is, well, you're coming to it uh, curios with curiosity and, and no real knowledge of how to talk about it. it that's exactly yeah, right. Yeah, I think yeah. that's just a, a 
person. Yeah, yeah I think a curious buffoons. person. <laughs> I guess this speaks to my relationship to humanity. Yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe, but like I've 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 had a few conversations in here, and I like to do that occasionally, where you know it's not about personal stuff, but it's really about like I had Sam uh, Quinones in here to talk about uh, heroin. Mm-hmm. He wrote that book, Dreamland. He's a journalist, and it was spectacular. I love and, those yeah. kinds of conversations. Yeah, Reza Aslan came in and talked about faith and belief. Reza did our show as well. Yeah, and, and we that was a really awesome episode. Yeah, was just it. It had this intersection of real comedy and real emotionality. We yeah, talked you know, about. Yeah, he's good. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, he's, he's got a good story about his life and a real uh, curiosity and scholarly approach to uh, faith and belief and stuff. I think conversations are are vital right now vital and evolving and uh require sensitivity and vulnerability and tolerance there's a, a tremendous lack of tolerance in a world where everyone has a platform to be a dick immediately well that's actually what <laughs> that's actually what the internet changing our brains conversation has come to is like there is a reason that political discourse has gotten simultaneously so toxic and so shallow right it's right because we what happens is because of the internet feeding us the information it knows we want in order to keep our brains and our eyes locked on our screen. Yeah. It's not going to give us stuff that'll make us push the computer screen away and say, I can't deal with it. It slowly feeds or, you. Or, or worse yet, or, ah, uh, this is boring. Oh, yeah, exactly. Or, yeah, and also you can respond immediately before the information you get is even processed. Yeah, exactly. There's no processing. It gives you what you want, and you're following after. There's this very stark and dire quote uh, that I saw recently, I heard recently, which is that if if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. Oh, yeah, it's like, I, yeah, yeah, the product is you. The product is you. And so sure. when you're on Facebook and you don't pay for Facebook, understand you are not the customer. The customer is the- It's it, like that joke I used to do. Oh, what was it? It was on my 95 HBO special. It's not a tool. You're a tool. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. And it's got, I mean, imagine how much more stark it's gotten since 1995. I know. I was the guy that said it was a fad. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Oops. Uh, Oops. W. Kimmel Bell was the guy that said that there'll never be a president named Barack Hussein Obama. Yeah. And then and then look what happened. Then look what happened. Yeah. Then look, And then look what happened. And then look what happened. I know. Which one is the anomaly? <laughs> right. We're just well, in- Time an- will tell. We're in anomalous times. Yes, that's for fucking sure. Yeah. I mean, it is so funny in a terrible- I'm weeping at the edge of the earth as the ice caps melt yeah. away that we thought we had broken through to the ultimate new layer of tolerance uh-huh. and, and understanding with Barack Obama. And then it's just like, oh, okay, sorry. Yeah. Here's your backlash. <laughs> Whoops. Welcome to America. Yeah. yeah. Welcome to whatever this is. Uh-huh. So, uh, right. You're the tool. <laughs> Good. Well, I, it sounds great, man. I'm happy you. for you. April 18th is our debut. So it's a Tuesday? It's on Tuesday. Let's, let's try this. I'm not sure when this goes up. Tomorrow night. Okay, sure. Or yesterday. <laughs> or two days ago. <laughs> Good talking to you. Thanks, Mark. Moshe Kasher, Watch Problematic. Premiering Tuesday, April 18th on Comedy Central. That I, I, I like Moshe. And he seems to be doing well. It, it makes me happy. Because, you know, I remember when these... Uh, these um, these guys were kids. I remember when they were kids. So Baron Vaughn is about to uh, enter your head. Uh, I've known Baron a while. He's been around. I've been kind of half watching him here and there. We've talked about maybe him coming on the show. I had my issues with him initially, but who don't I have issues with initially? 
you can see Baron on Grace and Frankie, which is now in season three, and on the new Mystery Science Theater 3000. Both are streaming on Netflix right now. And also, I should mention, Baron made a documentary for Fusion about finding his father called Fatherless. And we talk about that. You'll hear us talk about it right now. This is me and Baron Vaughn. Baron, this is yeah. a, a, I, you know this has been a long time coming, kinda. Oh yeah, I've held you back. <laughs> I've held you off. I've kept you out of here. Kept me in third grade when I should be in sixth. Well, I mean, I had to wait for you to be in sixth. I don't know if you should have been in sixth. <laughs> Perfect. No, I mean it was. Uh, you know, I, I'll cop to it. I guess I was thinking about what you know what it was. Was when did I fucking first meet you? Canada. Was it? I felt like it was at a festival. It was at a a not a great performing situation. I think like was Dave Vancouver Dave, might have been. Dave Foley was around. Like I feel like there was a bar. You were doing a show, and maybe it wasn't the first time I met you, but it might have been the first time I noticed you. That you paid attention. Yeah. The thing was, it was a, it was this dumb old timey pet peeve I had, and it, you know, and you can either qualify it or uh-huh. not. Early on when I saw you, my, you know, I, I thought you were good on stage. You did, uh, you know, different voices. You had some characters. You mm-hmm. did a thing. I could people the stage. That's what, did I, yeah, I know that line. Where'd you learn that line? From you. <laughs> Wait, where'd you, really? Yeah, you were talking about, uh, you were talking about Cosby back yeah. before back before we knew he was a monster. Right, I ripped that off though. I mean, I, I didn't make that up. That, some, that was in a critic, a critic said that about you know bill yeah. and i think it applies to like lenny it applies to a lot of people that yeah, prior that era right exactly yeah i love that thing so when i watched you there was part of me th- i my initial thought was like this guy's an actor mm-hmm. who wants to be a comic yeah this guy's an actor who's using comedy as a way in yes that's what a lot of comedians of your generation thought about <laughs> me and wrote me off until they started to listen and being like oh he's actually saying some stuff up there no 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 it wasn't you were funny it wasn't <laughs> Actually, uh, Todd Lynn, may he rest in peace. You know, he said a similar thing to me. Todd, of course, me and Todd Lynn would be the guy. <laughs> out, of, out of all the peace fucking people. in a fucking pod. No, I, God, I hope not. But yeah, <laughs> I was like one of those weird people that Todd liked. And it was always sort of a curse. Like, so <laughs> you know, why do you like me? Because you know, you know what's up. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> so he said that too. He said that to me. Yeah, because, I mean, look, I, I was an actor. I am an actor. I went to theater school and all that stuff. Ah. But all of that, in a way, was a distraction from the fact that I always wanted to be a stand-up. Sure. Because I grew up watching stand-up. I was a comedy nerd. Right. So that, I guess that's what it is. The chops come through. Yeah, you know, like uh, you know, acting chops come through because even somebody like Robert Klein, mm-hmm. who went to Yale, you know, he's actory. You, right. you know what I mean? Like, and he's another guy that I have sort of a. It's not a wall, but like you know, he's a you know, you're a comic, he's a comic, but you can see the chops. Okay, I, and that's not, I mean, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I, you're, you're here, we ha- we're hashing it out. Yeah, but that's always why I've always thought I was kind of like a perfect guest for you. <laughs> I'm like custom made because you kind of see me and you go, I'm sure you're a thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's that's kind of always how I felt. No, but you like you definitely you know you you do a lot of different like there's also an envy there like you know you're able to go in and out of these characters and and you know you've gotten funnier. But it was just I think it is something generational mm-hmm. where. There's uh, some sort of chip on the shoulder of older guys who saw a sort of, especially out here, you know, like what you start to realize about stand up is that, you know, if you're an actor, 
you know, it's hard to get seen unless you get called in. Yeah. But if you're a stand-up, you can get seen almost anytime you want. Yeah. It's and that's and then so you have this influx of people who are taking up the stage time. Right. And then you get diehards like me who are like, you know, if you're an actor and you're if you're a comedian, you're soul shit, you know, whatever. But uh you know, but where did you where were you from? I was born in New Mexico. Me too. I was lived there. I lived in New Mexico. I know. I know. I looked you up and it said Portales and I'm like, what the fuck? Yeah, Portales, New Mexico. Why would you like that's nowhere near where I grew up, but uh but it's it's over by Texas. Yeah, it's closer to Texas, kind of the eastern part of New Mexico. Um born in Portales, uh my I was born in nineteen eighty. My um my parents is a whole situation. That's actually part of the reason I'm here, is I made a documentary. Yeah. About finding my father and all this stuff. Uh-huh. He left before I was born. You know, my mom was 19. He was like 21 or like, something like that. Must have been like right before you were born. Like, yeah. I mean, I mean he, he did the thing. So there's only a nine month window there yes. where he can cut out. It was when it was revealed that my mother was pregnant. That's when he was like, not it. As really? Far as, I, as far as I know. Is that true? Yeah. So, but why, why would I doubt that? But why, uh, what, what, why Portales? Well, there's a college there called Eastern New Mexico yes. University. Yes. So that's where they were both attending. Oh, so they were students. Yes, they were students. And they where, where were they from? My mom was from, well, a little, littler, smaller town called Tucumcari. I know Tucumcari. Now, Tucumcari is the first place I remember. That's really where... I grew up. Odd places in New Mexico. Yeah, yeah. Small town, probably population 5,000 something. Yeah. What? what? I, I wonder what brought her family there. Well, um, prosperity, you know. Kind of looking back in the past, I'm learning a little bit more about my family's past again. Yeah. Another one of the reasons I... This, these are things that have been interesting to me yeah. as I've gotten older, as right. I'm working on myself, sure. going to therapy, right. finding out like, oh, we never talked about the past ever. Right. Like I just didn't have any information, like where my mom was born. I didn't know simple things, right? Did you find out? Uh, No. <laughs> Is she still around? Yeah, she's still she around. She's here. To it? Uh, she was born in, uh, you know, see, I don't even remember. We don't talk about it that much, but I'll huh. ask her. I think she was born in New Mexico. Wow. She thought she was born in Germany on a military base. Yeah. But she wasn't. She was born in New Mexico. So there's military back there somewhere. Yes. My grandfather, her mm-hmm. father, was in the was in the military. So no, New Mexico. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it, it, it's interesting because, like, there's another element to it. It's like, I don't, you know, African Americans in mm-hmm. Tucumcari. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah the, there's must, a lot. There, there were a lot. And there the were a lot in Portales, too, I think. You know, it seems to be that... The, the history of my family looks like we started in North Carolina. Right. Slowly kind of made our way west, you know, through Tennessee, mm-hmm. then Oklahoma, Texas, then New Mexico. I guess there was that uh, 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 movement west. Slow migration, yeah. Basically. Well, yeah, because Texas is, uh, there's a lot of uh, black people in Texas. Yes. Well, in the south. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know why, though. <laughs> I don't know yeah, why there would be a lot of black you didn't people go in the far, south. You didn't go that far back no, historically? No, no, no. There's no, histo- no history, you know, no context of why there would be a lot of black people You don't know where your mom is born, and you don't understand why there's all the black people <laughs> nope, in the south. Just, just said, nah. You don't go too deep with it. It's you not know my, what I mean? not my problem. I don't need to know about it. <laughs> no, um, obviously. Yeah, know. yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, uh, Tucumcari is a small town. You know? A real small town, Route yeah. 66 was the main street. Yep. Um, we were there. I was there a couple months ago. Really? Yeah, making this dock. And, oh, so you're uh, tracking the whole thing. You're going. Yeah. My I, my mom took me to Portales, showed me around. Like the place I was born, but I don't remember it at all. Right. And You didn't live there? No. I, small, small, small baby, but not where- Where'd I, you go after that? Tucumcari. Oh, so that was, okay. So she yeah. went back there. Her folks were there. Well, 
It was, my mom was 19. Mm -hmm. Everyone was mad at her for having this baby. Are you the only baby? Uh, Then I was. I have two little sisters now, but there's a 13-year age gap. Okay. Um, My grandmother, super progressive, was like, get an abortion, finish college. Yeah. My great-grandparents were like, you had sex outside of marriage. God is mad. Yeah, but you got to have it. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess. But then they kind of all abandoned her a little bit. Yeah. just left her to her own devices. And then two years after that, my great-grandparents- Holy shit. Came and got me. From where? From Tucumcari. They came into okay. Portales, got me, and raised me themselves. Great so grandparents. My great grandparents. I was raised by them in a little house in Tucumcari, New Mexico, until my mom got out of college about 85. And she took you back. She took me, and then we moved to Las Vegas, Nevada. Oh my God. Yeah. And that's where I mostly grew up. I was in Vegas until I went to college at Boston University. Where I went. Where you went. So we already got to New Mexico. And yeah, we got now, to Boston University. Yeah, now it's weird. So now, like, I, <laughs> I know why you're here. So your great grandparents, what were they like? I mean, were, that must. I mean, I imagine that's probably a good situation on some level. Yes and no. I mean, they were they were hard people. You know, they're like classic black Southern Baptist people. Uh huh. Very strong church people. Church was literally in the backyard. I mean that. I mean that. Like it was there. They were on the land that the church owned. Uh-huh. So they built a house right there on the land. Uh-huh. My, my great grandfather built it with his own hands. He was he worked at a lumber yard. He was a carpenter. He knew all the stuff. Right? No kidding. Like a, a, a quote unquote that, man's man. Is the house still there? Yeah. Really? Yes, it is. Was that a trip? Yes. <laughs> yes, it was. And we, we went up to it and uh, there's a family living in it that we actually knew. They lived across the street. So when my great grandparents passed away, my grandmother sold the house to them. So there's several generations now, yeah. a, a couple of generations. Well, of we walked up and they, they saw my mom and they were like, oh my goodness. And then they saw me, they're like, what? You were five when yeah. we saw you last. No kidding. Yeah. That's crazy. It's crazy stuff. And uh, so so you you leave New Mexico when you're five? Yeah. About Your mom five married or six, another man like or what? No, no, we just went to Vegas um, because- oh, I can't even, I can't even, the thought of going there now bothers me. <laughs> well, it's very different. First of all, my grandmother was already there, right? My mom had mostly grew up in Vegas, went to school in Vegas, and then spent the summers in New Mexico. That yeah. was kind of her pattern, right? Right. So we went there because at the time we moved, especially like the mid, mid 80s to the early 90s, Vegas was the fastest growing city in the United States- Sure, job. Very low cost of living. Mm-hmm. Jobs, 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 jobs. Where'd you where'd your mom work? My mom, when we got there, she had probably two or three jobs at different like retail mm. like clothing stores. Yeah. And then the Mirage opened. Yeah. And when a casino opens in Vegas, it's like, and eh, now here's five thousand jobs. Right. So she got a job there about eighty nine, I want to say, something like at that. At the Mirage. At the Mirage. Yeah. So did did you grow up like? Because that's what I I just don't I don't have a sense of Vegas you know as a place where people live. Well, let me give you a sense, Mark. <laughs> um, it's hot. I'll tell you that. I know that. It's but that that's a big reason that it's weird there, because there's not a lot of outdoor stuff. Yeah. To me, it feels like when people try to do outdoor stuff, try to impersonate the suburbs. Yeah. It's 125 degrees. Yeah, grass like, doesn't even want to grow. This little league game, everyone's yeah. going to be exhausted. Dehydrated. Dehydrated. You know, Sunburnt. And it's, it was, so people just kind of stay inside in their air-conditioned home, mm. run outside to their air-conditioned car, go to another Yeah, my brother place. lives in Phoenix. It's similar. Yeah, Phoenix yeah. is also yeah. is as hot as yeah. Vegas. The only yeah. place that's hotter is Death Valley. Really. Yeah, I, I kind of like it. 
I like being out in that for a while because like I don't do drugs anymore. And if, you, <laughs> if you're if you're out in that desert heat for about a half hour, you like you're fucked up. You start to see things. Yeah, yeah. Oh hell yeah, yeah. Oh, the shaman's here. Yeah. Oh, thank God. <laughs> Take I got me some, to the CBS. I got some questions. <laughs> <laughs> so so you're in Vegas and yeah. What what are you doing in high school? Do you do you go gamble? Do you go like that's a, well. Uh, I mean, my mom worked at the Mirage. She didn't work in the casino part of it. She worked right. in the warehouse, like the retail warehouse. Uh-huh. All the merch comes there, right? Yeah. Um, I. But like, how do you get into trouble? You don't seem like a get into trouble kind of guy. But oh. I'm sure you're hiding something horrible. <laughs> you know it. I do. Sorry, Danny. The yeah. secret comes out now. Yeah. Um, I was a latchkey kid, you know. Yeah. So it's like it was me and my mom, and she was at work, and I'd usually have two or three hours at home by myself after school. Yeah. Um, from third grade, you know, on to 12th. And then my grandmother moved in with us at some point. Yeah. So it was me, my mom, and my grandma. Yeah. And uh, then we moved to a different part of Vegas and me, my mom, my grandma, my grandma and I shared a room. I slept on the floor. She slept in the bed until she got a bunk bed. Then it was super cool. You and your grandma. Me and my grandma in a bunk bed. She got the top bunk. I got the top. <laughs> yeah, How dare you? Yeah. I would not make her climb those stairs. No, that was very nice of you. <laughs> Uh, we fought. We fought over it. Yeah. Um. So yeah, bunk bed from eighth grade to twelfth grade with your grandmother. With my grandmother, never invited anyone over. I wonder why. Um. I didn't. Yeah. So it's a small place. It was. It was an apartment. Yeah. It was a two bedroom apartment. Um. So yeah, I mean, Vegas is. It's a strange place, you know, to grow up. Um. I was out by myself with you know just kind of around the neighborhood. The neighborhood we were in was kind of rough. Do you have friends? I did, yeah, from the apartment complex, definitely. Just you a couple go, of so kids. like like you'd go out into the courtyard or whatever, the apartment or the parking lot. Yeah, basically. Throw a ball around, break some windows. Yes, and broke my arm. Mm. Broke my arm broke my arm playing football with some friends in third grade. Um yeah, like a swimming pool was usually there, which right. was, you know, a disgusting apartment complex swimming pool, but, but good. it was ours. Yeah. You know. So it was uh it was it was not uh, it was difficult living. Uh it was okay because it was like we were always keeping our head above water, you yeah. know, financially. Because your mom was working. My mom was working, but you were know, were you working? No, not yet. Were you young? I was. So, young. You, how? When does the the second man come in? Um, well, my stepfather probably came in about seventh, sixth, sixth, seventh grade, somewhere around there. Good dude. Oh, we didn't really get along that well. I don't think you're supposed to. From, <laughs> That's part of the all, step process, yeah, right? From, all the, from everything I've heard, it's a tough, uh, tough road. Yeah, I mean, look, like we can hang out, you know, be in the same room with each other. But it wasn't abusive. Um, mm. Yeah? There's, there's some abuse in my childhood, definitely. What, like physical? Physical, mental, emotional. Yeah, right, from all that, that guy? Well, from my mom and him, yeah. After he showed up? No. No, your mom was always a little. She was, well, look, she she had been probably abused herself as well. And in a church family, right. that's kind of like, just pray on that. Right. You know, don't right. talk about it. So yeah, yeah. A lot of pent up stuff, which yeah. turned into some addiction later, you know, when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. Kind of like, you know elementary to middle school and some middle schools when it started getting pretty like i noticed it yeah because i was getting older and i understood what, what it was, was your thing uh what do you mean what what addiction to what um the drink oh yeah, yeah the yeah. drink yeah and so the legal stuff yeah that's uh you know it's at least it's a little more you can wrap your head around it it's dangerous but it's not sorted necessarily it's easy to get that's right you don't yeah. have to go down yeah, like yeah. horrible paths to get it right and meet yeah horrible yeah. people all yeah. the time um 
And she was also kind of did it on her own. You know, yeah, I, yeah. I'm sure she had some buddies that she went out with. Sure. But she would kind of, there was a time where it was like she would come home from work. Self-medicating. Right. Yeah. She'd sit there, you know, in a in locked room. And yeah. when she came out, it was a different person. Yeah. Sort not, of that pattern. Not a fun person, I guess. Not a fun person. Sometimes fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Depends for, on the day. For, for a little while, right? Yeah. But, you know, but I'm also a walking reminder of the fact that she was abandoned. So yeah. that kind of, you know, is a kind of a, oh, kind of a concoction that turns a person to a comedian. Yeah, but that's interesting. Is that something you you were able to identify later? I imagine. Yeah, in the last couple of years. Right. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty deep, right? Yeah, because I apparently look like my father a lot. Did did was did they were they? I guess they were so young. It's it's hard to know what you know what you know how substantial that relationship was, other than and they see it differently. As they would. But yeah. that is the most important piece of the puzzle to me. Yeah. Is that they were young. Right. They didn't know what the hell they were doing. Yeah. Suddenly there was this reality that they couldn't deal with. Yeah. Both of them were like, my parents are going to freak. Yeah. And their, their respective parents did. Yeah. And so they both dealt with it in their own ways. But, you know, because when I was telling people I was going to go meet him, people were like, oh, are you mad? How could he do this to you? I'm like, he didn't do it to me, actually. I wasn't even alive. Yeah. This happened to my mom. Yeah. You know, I right. came later and, and, you know, because of the circumstances that she was in that turned her into the person she was in, it became a thing for me later, you know, but her and I, we healed, you know, we, we made peace in college and stuff like that. So I consider her one of my best friends now. Oh yeah. Very, you know, she's been sober for a really long time. All these, all these great things. Oh know? yeah. Yeah. You yeah, have yeah. a good relationship, but still it doesn't negate what happened sure because i'm still learning like oh that's my mommy issue like stuff that still keeps showing up well yeah i would have to imagine that at some point the abandonment issues do play into your own story as of well you of know course. not having that that father figure early on right absolutely it's, and that has to do with my relationship to my maleness mhm you know this is actually where comedy comes in because this is when i started to look to tv for models. Like how old were you, you think? Um, this is probably fifth, sixth, seventh grade. And when you got all that time on your hands. Yeah. Like the Merv Griffin show and those afternoon those well, afternoon actually, shows. Actually, um back in New Mexico, I was a big fan of Nick at Night, which right. would show not only all these old black and white sitcoms, but the original SNLs. Yeah. Like the original five years, S E T V. Yeah. Laughing, Carol yeah, Burnett, right, right, and uh, and Flip Wilson show, Flip Wilson, Charlene. So I'd be watching all that stuff, absorbing it, uh-huh. and then as I got older, moved to Vegas. It was sort of the time that Comedy Central was starting. There was, you know, as you remember, yeah. Comedy Channel and Ha, yeah, they combined yeah. short attention span theater, watching it, yeah, Mystery Science Theater three thousand, watching it, yeah, Wienerville taking it all Mark in, Mark Wiener and his puppets taking it all in. So I started to see. Um, comedians you know especially black comedians that i was kind of um looking up to people like Pryor, eddie murphy and you're seeing all the young guys too at that yeah. point yeah warren hutcherson yes yes warren hutcherson um lance Crothers, mm-hmm. um dave Chappelle, obviously chris rock all those people were kind of starting to come up i was already looking up to Pryor and, and those, those sure people. those are the established ones but at that exactly. time on comedy central the great thing about you know the era that i was on which uh, you know I didn't appreciate, but that there were just so many clips of young comics because mm-hmm. they shot us all for different things and they'd repurpose it. So there's just this never-ending stream of you Stand know up. eight to twelve minute 
pieces yeah. of all these young cats who are now like you know I used to love Warren and he, you know he's a he went on to be a big writer but his like his bits were great I should talk to him yeah have him on the podcast do you know him around personally him around no yeah. I don't know him personally um, but uh, so that's all soaking in you're like this is a way to deal with the world yeah and actually we had. HBO as well. So I was watching Dev Comedy Jam. I was watching HBO specials. I was watching the HBO Comedy Half Hours. So I was absorbing all that. And then probably the most important thing for me. I love me, Hughley's Half Hour. Dale Hughley's, his that old one. That first one, that real old one where he's kind of angry. It like, might actually be up on HBO Now and HBO yeah. Go. They put up a lot of those old specials. And I'm like, what? Like, it's pretty amazing to see. I just remember noticing this fury in his face. <laughs> but, you know, but he was doing pretty you know, you know, mainstream stuff. Ooh. But he was very intense. Oh, I have to watch that again. Um, probably the most important thing that I saw is Robert Townsend had a, had a special called Partners in Crime. Yeah. He did a couple of them. Yeah. And it was like stand up. And so you'd see like Tommy Davidson and like Sinbad and some people. But then he would do these short films, which were sketches. Right. And it was sort of pre In Living Color because mm-hmm. it would have all the Waynes's. It'd have Paul Mooney. It'd have Robin Harris. It'd have like, you know, LaWanda Page, I think, would show up in it. Robin so it's like, Harris. Oh, yeah. All BB's these comics kids. in one place. Yeah. And it was sort of like two generations. And I, and then of course I followed In Living Color when that started because I was like, oh, I just saw those guys. And he did that movie that he was like that Hollywood first. Shuffle. Yeah. The one who, you know, the first guy to get all that press for stringing along his credit cards at, you know, the independent self made yes. movie. That was a good movie. And what was the black community like where you were growing up? Well, there is a black community in Vegas. We were in North Las Vegas, which was kind of more of a black enclave, yeah. you could say. Um, but then we moved, when my mom got the, the job at the Mirage, we moved closer to the Strip, so she right. could, so her commute wasn't insane like it was sure. before. Um, I, I didn't really have a sense, personally, of a black community around me. Well, I mean, I think that's what you get from those shows. You know, That's what I got of, from the shows, yes. Yeah, that there is one. And there's, yeah. there's a defined sort of... Uh, I was just watching it in sitcoms. Right. Then I was outside. Yeah, that's interesting though. But it's also, it's a little bit of, now I know that my mom was really paranoid because of the neighborhood we lived in. She was really paranoid about me being outside, didn't want me to be outside with... with because it was the early 90s and it was like every single news story was like, he's black, he's angry, he's coming, yeah. and we don't know why. Yeah. And it was at five. And I'm like, right. what? That's everyone I know, including yeah. me. Yeah. So there was this fear of violence all yeah, of the time right which dissipated and i didn't because you know a big thing is that we didn't go to church once we moved back to vegas like the kind of the the relationship to church was over was it plowed into your head pretty strong i mean were you uh you know was it second nature to you were you a believer you know what i believed in was performance hmm. like my pr- the preacher that i had was the first comedian that i liked uh-huh because he was on stage entertaining an audience that's how it starts and that's that's where i got the bug for real was wanting, I used to want to be a preacher, you know, but yeah. it was really that I wanted to be on stage uh-huh. talking to people. Well, I think a lot of them do too. It's like, you know, <laughs> it's a good racket, you know, it's True. a good racket for a lot of people. True. You can work the road. A lot of work. Got to bring a tent with you. You know, you got to go yeah. to your, your preacher open mics. Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. There, I guess there are preacher open mics, but usually it's just, you get a, what is it? I guess a lesser position. You're the associate pastor. Or yeah. The associate. Uh, There's people know. on Hollywood Boulevard right now with, sure. <laughs> with speakers going like, listen to me. That's yeah. the open mic to oh, be a preacher. <laughs> it's a tough gig. <laughs> All right. So how do you find yourself, uh, you know, going to Boston? How did that happen? Well, um, I was in middle school. Okay. So I've always been really educated. 
was important to my grandmother, education. Good student. Um, eh, when I, until I got made fun of. Until like a teacher was like, everyone needs to be more like Baron. And then I got bullied. I'm like, all right, that's it. Nothing but bees. When was that? This is like, this is elementary school. Oh, you buckled. In the middle school. Yeah, man. I didn't want to stick out uh-huh. in any sort of way. My grandma taught me to write cursive when I was in kindergarten. I was mm-hmm. like knowing things uh, that other kids didn't so I could read really well. Middle school-ish. I could read off the page mm-hmm. without making any mistakes. Mm-hmm. So we'd have like English class and yeah. be like, Baron, read. Yeah. And then I would do voices and do all the stuff. The, you were ahead of the curve. I was ahead of the curve. So I was in eighth grade and the, um, uh, the librarian at my middle school was the wife of the principal of the brand new performing arts high school in Las Vegas. Really? So they were like, you need to audition for that place. I went and talked to her, Mrs. Gary, and then... Um, Got my application, learned a monologue, had no idea what a monologue was, went and auditioned for this high school, and then I ended up going to high school there. At the Performing Arts High School in Vegas. Las Vegas Academy. Well, that's called. a fucking gift. <laughs> yes, it was. Thank God for that, right? Especially because I had some kids that, for the school I was supposed to go to, I had kids I knew, they're like, when you went high school, I'm killing you. Right. I'm like, okay, I need to not go here. So, and it was its first year, huh, that you got in there? Uh, I was probably around for like maybe two or three years before I got there. So it was exciting and probably, yeah. you know, well-funded and, you know, things were happening. Yeah, people were excited about it. And uh, it it was one of the top high schools. I don't know how it is now. It probably still is. Just because it's an art school, so kids test well. Right. Because when you turn learning, you make learning fun, guess what? People retain knowledge. But you had to learn other basics, I imagine. Of course. Yeah. yeah. We had regular high school classes. But right. And we would have our major uh, we'd have two of those classes. Yeah, and so, what was your major? Theater. So you were doing the acting. I was doing acting, watching stand-up Singing? all the time. Did you sing? I did sing a little bit, yeah. Some musicals? <laughs> you know I did it, Mark. I of know. Course. Which ones? Um, you know, I never got cast in the... I want to say that like the biggest <laughs> part that I played in high school was uh, Fagin in Oliver. Oh, yeah? If you remember that at I all. I do. And, uh, and then I was kind of in some other stuff, Little Shop of Horrors. And, yeah fame uh-huh and then i in high school probably about my junior year when people everyone started talking about college i was like oh what am i going to do and then i realized that you can actually study theater at college you can actually study acting so you looked around it's because boston university has a pretty uh, like one of the better theater programs yeah when i was not known for it i don't think maybe it is now but it was good it, it is to actors yeah you know um we were supposedly in the top three schools yeah when i went there and uh, that's one of the reasons I, I applied to like nine schools because I'm like, it's subjective. Who's gonna, someone's going to think I'm suck. Yeah. Someone's going to think I'm great. Um, so Where'd Boston, you apply? Um, NYU, Juilliard. Big ones. Carnegie Mellon. Yale? Uh, no, not Yale. Yeah. Yale doesn't have a, a discernible undergrad. undergrad. That's right. That's right. Um, where else? Uh, Webster University. Well, Sin- Carnegie Mellon, Sin- NYU. Purchase, those are big Juilliard. SMU. Yeah. Like, you know, University of Evansville, Indiana. All these schools that I had researched. About the theater. About theater. Yeah. Um, so, Boston University, even though it was one of the more expensive schools, uh-huh. they luckily gave me like a good little scholarship. Nice. So I ended up being able to afford to go to it, even though I'm still paying some loans off. And you did uh, you did four years? Did four years of acting, and, yeah. Oh, man. So that the, I know where that is. I mean, I took an acting class or two up there. Did you? But I was an English major. Who I did was, you take? I was in stage troupe, so I was in the non-acting major stage thing, you know, where we'd put on shows. Did you take any classes from acting teachers? Just Robert Young, and I don't know if he was there still. Oh, uh, okay. When All you right. were there. 
There was a man named Jim Spruill. Maybe yeah, I remember him. Yeah. Oh, you do? Yeah. He was very adamant about teaching acting to people who weren't there to study acting. He thought it's a, something that everyone I think he know. was the head of the school for a while, wasn't he, maybe? I don't know. I don't know if he ever was. I just talked to Mike Chiklis. He's a graduate from- Oh, yeah, uh, from BU, yeah. yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, they they turned out a couple of people that you know. Yeah, Julianne Moore, Alfred Woodard, mm. um, some people that I liked. Uh, but yeah, I went there and uh, it was probably my junior, it was the summer between my sophomore and my junior year I started doing stand-up. In Boston. In Boston. No kidding. Dick Doherty's Comedy Vault. Yeah, sure. The Vault. The Vault right there on, uh, on Boylston. Yeah. yeah. And I was in and out of it because it was like theater school was so demanding that I could only go to one show on Sunday or Monday that I could go um, to. Uh, to perform? To perform. Yeah. So I did stand up in Boston probably for about a year, year and a half-ish before I moved to New York. At when you graduated? When I graduated. When did you graduate? 2003. So you've been doing comedy for 14 years? Um, well, let me think. I think it was the summer of 2001. So yeah, about two years in Boston. Uh -huh. um, so coming up on 16. No kidding. Yeah. All right. <laughs> you're totally surprised. No, it's not that I'm surprised. You're like, I, oh, I, maybe you're not. Maybe you are a com comic after yeah, all. Yeah, you, maybe, you I'll, maybe, I, maybe I'll change my, uh, how I have you framed in my head. <laughs> Please. But So you go to New York to do comedy. I go to New York for various reasons. I mean, I graduated school, and uh, I ended up going to this thing called the Williamstown Theater Festival right after school. Yeah. In Williamstown, Mass. Yeah. Um, Western Mass. and With what? Um, there was a theater festival there, and they- Were you performing? Yeah. I had like a little internship, like an acting internship, mm -hmm. and uh, I was able to audition for stuff in New York. The people, yeah. casting directors came there. Right, okay, I get it. One of those things where it's yeah. like, if you do this, you'll get seen by them. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, and then ended up getting cast in this, a small part in this uh, play on Broadway. And that was my first job in New York. What theater? It's Manhattan Theater Club. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Uh, the Biltmore Theater. Oh, yeah. Which I think was new at the time. Hmm. Um, it was cool because Alfred Woodard was in it, another BU alum. Wow. Anthony Mackey, um, a couple different uh, actors. That, Alfred Woodard's great. Yeah, she's fantastic. We keep in touch. You do? We do, yeah. Oh, that's cool. She's great. Um, and I had a bit part in that, and I moved to New York doing that, and then it was over after like three months, and then I was just in New York. There you with, go. Without another, a job. Another guy who's an actor. My roommate being like, um, the rent though, the yeah. rent, where's was that? That, that was in, when you were living in Astoria? No, that was, uh, the first place I lived was in Spanish Harlem. Oh, yeah. And it was like a three-bedroom that four of us were living in. I lived with a, I had a roommate, and literally, we shared a room. And I really? had an air mattress. Bunk bed? No, I had an air mattress. <laughs> I had an air mattress that someone had gave me, and then one day someone stepped on it, and, and it, it like undid the seam. Yeah. So then there was this huge hump in the middle of the air mattress that I just slept on for like another five months or something like that. You couldn't afford an air mattress. Could not afford an air mattress. That's Oof, true. And then tough, a friend gave me a bed. Tough times. A friend from Long Island gave me like an old trundle bed that they had. It's always nice when someone just gives you a bed. Yeah. I gave my big futon bed to the guy across the hall from me when I left the Lower East Side. Oh, nice. I'm like, here you go. He was appreciative too, wasn't he? Was he was a painter, swept on the floor. Ah. Uh, yeah. I did. I gave him a big old bed. I had this uh, studio apartment on Avenue, 2nd Street between A and B mm. in the 80s. And uh, Ooh, I, when it was scary. It was still scary a little bit, just at the end of that. But I'd bought this huge futon frame. It took up hmm. the entire thing. Like it was on the floor. I'm like, I got a little money. I'm going to buy a frame. And it took up the entire room, this frame. But it turned into a couch, right? No, no. It was like straight up. 
<laughs> like frame, like a bed frame. Oh, okay. Wooden frame. Pretty. So it didn't move. No, no. It was just there. Yeah. Taking up space. The whole room. Ooh. Yeah, whatever. I gave it to the guy. Okay. Yeah, he was happy. <laughs> I don't know if it changed his painting. Maybe it ruined him. I don't know. Maybe it I, I was his downfall. He was painting from his pain. Yeah, now he, he could he get a good night's sleep. Living this ascetic life, sweeping on the floor like a monk. <laughs> And I gave him luxury and just <laughs> toppled him. Just, that's I it. Had no you idea. S- you could see the comfort in all his brush strokes. Yeah, yeah, it's over. That's it. But, uh, all right, so how long are you in New York before you get the first, uh, what what type of gig were you getting? How much time did you have as a comic at that point? Like 20, 25, what? <sighs> oh, man. I mean, when I got to New York, I was doing bringer shows and open mics. And then- At what? Like the Ha? I was doing them at Stand Up New York. Yeah. And the Old Gotham. Right. The one on 22nd 20, Street. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, I like that room. It was just a perfect room. Yeah, it I always get better than the new one. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah, the new one's too big and the ceilings are high and it's, it's weird. a box. It sounds weird. Yeah, I've only been but there it's like there. that old one was like It was kind of good. Yeah. It's a jazz club now. That's how good the acoustics yeah, are. it was kind of good. Um, so I was doing those and then I kind of started to meet a couple comics that were younger that were doing independent shows. Mm. And then I started doing more of those. What were you around for the, for the, uh, Eugene Merman dominated, uh, scene? Eugene was just a little bit before me. Bring them up or whatever. Yeah. Uh, invite them up. Yeah. Yeah. The Rafifi and all that. Yeah. Yeah. The thing about your generation is mm. you guys actually did stand up in comedy clubs. Right. So, and then you started to do that stand-up in places that weren't clubs. Right. And then the generation behind you were just doing only the places that were the alternative venues. Right. They weren't doing clubs. Yeah, but it's interesting when you really think about the, like, because, like, people like Hannibal and Holmes and Kumail, yeah. I, they did clubs. They're my generation. They're Chicago guys. And Kinane, those Chicago yes. guys, I think, did clubs. Well, that's what happened is that the third gen, we came, and the, the alt scene before us, the second wave, yeah. right, was, was more exclusive than the clubs. Right. So then we were, oh, we had a hand in both. We had a yeah. foot in both. Right. Because I would do stand-up New York, like I said, in Gotham, and then I would do Ha here and there. Yeah. When comics opened, I became like their house MC for some reason. Um, that might have been where I met you. Yeah, I might have opened for you there. I think that's right. Um, for I, you know, that is the meatpacking right. district, yeah. Well, that was a, a very, that was a luxurious club that just didn't last Didn't long. last. Everyone was always like, well, how is this place still That is open? where you opened for me, I remember. Yeah, because yeah. I, I opened for, I got to do a lot of shows there that I was really happy to do, you know, like I opened for you. I remember opening for Tompkins, Larry Miller. It was yeah. really interesting. Yeah, um, that's too bad that club didn't fucking make it. Yeah, it was a, it was a nice little club. It was ambitious. It, it was a tough maybe market. Maybe too ambitious. Tough market. Yeah. Well, yeah, they were paying. It was almost like, you don't, yeah, I don't think you should be paying this much money. I mean, I came up in New York. I'm like, it's probably too much money. Well, and you know, because that's the other thing about New York is paid spots. Yeah. So me showing up to a show, I'm literally taking money out of comics pockets. That's the older generation are like, you're taking a spot from me. That's my $50. What do you mean? When you do a guest spot or something? No, if I get passed into a club. Yeah. It's like I am now yeah, in the that's, way. That's no way to look at it. I mean, that's I'm not way... saying that's how I looked at it. Oh. I'm saying that I think some of those guys looked at it that way. I guess. I mean, you know, uh, I don't. Yeah. I mean, but that's more on the club. That ain't on you. That doesn't mean I didn't internalize it. <laughs> that doesn't okay. mean I went like, oh, I don't belong, you know? Right, right. Because I didn't chase the alt scene. You know, I kind of, I randomly met Nick Kroll and then we hit it off and I said, hey, you had a show over at the the thing, right? Yeah. And he's like, yeah, come do it. And then suddenly I was doing a lot of those shows. Right. And then the generation came. So you were in between. Yeah, because I was- But you never locked into the mainstream scene. Yeah, I never locked into the club scene, yeah. but I did meet a lot of great comics that right. started to come over because yeah. I remember I was in New York already and doing shows when Hannibal showed up, yeah. when Eric Andre showed up. 
Kumail, um, Pete. I met Pete early. Mm-hmm. I remember when John Mulaney started. Yeah. So it's like I was already around, and then uh, and then Schumer showed up, and like all these different people, right? So it's like, and Julian McCullough, and just all these all these people. Sure. Um, You're of that crew. Of that of that crew. Yeah. Yeah. And are you getting acting parts? Are you going out for parts? What are you doing? Well, at the time, I think I was working at a law firm, actually. After the Broadway show ended, I, started, I was working at a law firm for like two years. That before the colleges? Yes. Yeah. Because I was auditioning for commercials and stuff. Right. You were doing the acting thing. I was doing the acting thing, got a commercial, was able to quit my job, booked a few other commercials. What was commercial? Able to, it was like an AOL commercial, uh-huh. if I remember correctly. Yeah. And because remember when they had commercials or when they had AOL? Sure. Uh, and then I was able to support myself off of that, quit my day job, and was doing stand-up all night, auditioning during the day, doing stand-up all night, and then slowly transitioned into doing colleges. And then colleges started to dry up about 08, and then started transitioning more into like actually booking acting roles. Did you get any good ones? Uh, acting roles? Early on. Not any good ones. You're I mean, in New York still. Yeah, I had, I was doing bit parts on shows here and there, yeah. and like- you know, and of course there was the the VH1 talking head shows, and then Ugh. like that was at the pinnacle. Like I love the '80s and Best Week Ever were yeah. like hot. That was just like some sort of cultural bottom hitting. <laughs> well, it was like I, they, everybody. Yeah, I, I, they yeah. wouldn't pay. They only paid certain people, mm-hmm. and it was like you're going to get exposure. And I was no, like, but not. no one cares who I. No, no one cares about me. That was the biggest racket in the world. It was a, a yeah. hell no of money, racket. but boy, you'd be on TV. <laughs> but boy, people yeah. would be like, that five seconds that yeah. guy was on TV. Yeah. Let's get him. So you did all that shit. Yeah, I was doing all that stuff, and then probably 2009 is I actually booked a pilot, like a. A role on a show. Yeah, the show didn't go right, but it was a nice paycheck. What t- what pilot was that? It was called Canned. Was the name of it. Uh-huh. It was like the the um, what's it called the the recession had taken right. hold. Yeah, and so people were writing shows about people dealing with that. Right. This show was about like a bunch of investment bankers who all got fired on the same day and had to kind of like redefine their lives. Right. It was ABC multicam sitcom. They got a little experience, huh? Yeah. I yeah. mean, I had theater experience, so I can do multicam. I can memorize lines. Quickly. Yeah, but being in that machine of like doing the exactly. stopping and starting and you yes. know, rewriting and you know working it, rewriting five pages the... here, do it now, yeah, yeah, in front of an audience, yeah. Um, like, oh, okay. Um, and then the next year after that, I booked a pilot that ended up going to series, and I went to Vancouver to do that. That's Shoot why. It. What? What? Which one was that? It's called Fairly Legal. It was a USA. Oh yeah. Show. How long did that stay on? Two years. So you were working. So I was you did working. Like, what twenty two, twenty three episodes? Um, yeah, like maybe like maybe like twenty episodes. Uh huh. You had pretty good. You're just above. Your quotes were just above entry level. Yeah. Um. It was great and horrible at the same time. It was great to be employed, but when I went to Vancouver, that's when I learned that I have some really intense depression and anxiety because I was sitting by myself in a city I knew no one in mm. a lot. Mm-hmm. And just like not getting out of bed for weeks, eating Cheerios, <laughs> like eating Except Cheerios. Except work? Yes, basically. I didn't know anyone. Oh, see. I, and I had no stage. I didn't know any comics. So I was like, I can't go up. Fell into yourself. You yeah. could have went out. And- yeah, but I also was like, I don't want to like big dick my way on the shows. Like being like, hey, people know me in the States. I just didn't feel like that was classy. See, that might be where you're not quite a comic. <laughs> <laughs> 
that might be the one flaw that you have. Are you sure that the depression and the anxiety don't get me no, there? They'll, they'll get you in. Okay, perfect. But the idea that you wouldn't go someplace going, where's my, how do I get on? I just, you know, it's like, I knew that there was a scene in Vancouver. It's, it's humility. It's not a bad thing, buddy. Right. But because also like, what if they hate me? You know, what if I like don't do well and like, oh, this guy said he was big in the States. I guess no one's good there. I guess I don't know how much of that I have, but you sort of hope, you you know, you go meet a couple comics and you know, the without being, you know, swinging dick, you know, you just sort of, they eventually will go like, well, you want to get on, you know? Well, and the next year that I was there. In Vancouver. In Vancouver, there was a guy on the crew who happened to know a lot of comics. He hooked me up with some people. And so the second year I was there, I ended up doing a lot of spots and then ended up doing that, that comedy festival in Vancouver as well. Right. Which ended up being, um, that's another reason I probably got super depressed. I was not doing any, I went, I didn't go on stage for like, five six months yeah it's bad and i'd never taken that so well, how'd break. you handle the depression what what did you learn did you what, what happened well i didn't know i was depressed i just thought this is how i feel yeah I, i'm like that too yeah right and then i was talking to a friend of mine um who is much older than me about 20 years older a comic and she i was telling her like yeah i just don't want to get out of bed and i've been sitting <laughs> in bed for yeah. like two weeks yeah and, I've been showering with with dishwasher soap and yeah. eating nothing but Cheerios, and she's like, "I think you're depressed." And I'm like, "Oh, that's what. Oh, oh yeah. I just thought the world was heavy. Okay, <laughs> okay. I thought it was reasonable. Well, you know, because also like, I was staying in this this apartment where, if I was in the back bedroom, mm-hmm. I could get internet, I can get a good signal, and I could be instant messaging yeah. with my friends all day. Yeah. So what I started doing to solve this problem is I left my computer in the living room. So Just if I to go to the living room, yeah, because uh, it would be at the bed, yeah, and I would open it up and sit in bed all day. Oh my god! But just getting out of bed to go check my computer—that was step one. It was step one, and then I'm like, well, I'm up. I might as well take a shower, and then yeah. I take a shower. I'm like, well, I took a shower. I might as well go outside. Nah, I'm gonna go back to bed. But then I did. Okay. I would go outside. So you handled it. Maybe it wasn't bit. clinical depression as much as it was just alienation. Yeah, it's a little bit of all that stuff, but also, um, yeah, because I've never been diagnosed depressed. Like, yeah. I, I don't know that Did I you get on the medicine, a chemical thing. No, I, I didn't. Yeah, so you were just, yeah. Yeah. Lonely and sad. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I was lonely and sad and being like, oh, man, I'm really lonely and sad. This yeah. is how I feel when I'm with others. Hmm. Mm, yeah, yeah. And then started kind of trying to handle that. And- so you do that, they cancel the show, but you made some money? Canceled the show, I made some money. Unfortunately, I had a business manager who stole it. Oh, shit. And that's how that story goes. Really? Yeah. At that level? Usually that happens at much more money levels. I'm, so still, did- I'm still, I was still green. I didn't vet. Like, someone was like, oh, this, I know a guy. And did then you I, take him to court? Or? I filed my charges, because there's like a statute of limitations. Like, I'm still within my rights to file charges. Yeah. But the dude's missing. Oh, really? he's gone. Like, he's just, we can't keep track of him. You know, he, we can't find him. We can't uh-huh. track him down. So it's like, and also, like, here's the other thing. He spent the money. Yeah. Like, it's not in a mattress waiting for me. It's just, it's How'd gone. How'd you get in touch with this shitty business manager? A friend of mine put me in touch with him. Uh. Um, the friend also was hornswaggled. That's how easy it is. Yeah, it's a sh- but it's it's a pretty short con. You got to get a couple guys and know your number and get out. And that's what he did. Mm. He got, He did the short con. He kind of played a bunch of people, took a lot of my money, and then bounced. Sorry, buddy. Well, you know, li- you live and live and learn. Is that when he moved to L.A.? Uh, yeah, yeah. I moved to L.A. after I got that Vancouver show, and because uh, I was like, well, it's the same in the West Coast. It's a three-hour flight, so I moved out here, and then um, 
yeah, got involved with that. And then after the show was canceled, I didn't work for like two, two and a half years. Just kicking around here? Doing yeah. comedy, though. Doing comedy and doing the road, you know, and feeling like uh, I came home one day and there was a summons on my front door. Uh, I had been sued by Boston University for a defaulted student loan. Really? Oh, yeah. It wasn't even that much. It was a lot to me. Mm-hmm. But like for a university to sue me for this amount of money. And then someone told me, oh, it's actually a phenomenon. There's like a bunch of schools who if they gave you a government loan, the government is on them because it's oh, still the recession. Right. The government's like, where's our money, Boston U? And the Boston's like, oh, we lend it to this guy. We'll sue him. And so I got sued and I was like, I do not have the money to pay this. So I remember falling to the ground and being like, that's it. I'm done. I'm done with comedy. I'm done with acting. I'm going to move. I'm going to get out of here. But I ended up like just kind of in that bottom, if you will, yeah. quote unquote, I sort of was like, I, I needed an attitude adjustment. And so started kind of going toward the path, I guess, to mental health and like trying to have a better attitude, trying to trying to figure out what is it that I want to happen. What are you reading books? You talking to a guru? You going to therapy? Talking is- to, well, it was mostly talking to a lot of my friends who were intelligent, yeah. but yeah, reading books um going to therapy here and there and then you know more normally now that i can afford it that's the irony how'd you deal with that summons um well they sued me in boston where Mm. i don't live and so i didn't show up to court so they were awarded amount that was twice the amount that i even owed in the first place they were by who by this creditor oh they sold my credit. They sold my debt to this lawyer. Yeah. So the lawyer in Boston sued me, took me to court. I didn't show up. Yeah. And they were like, oh, well, you automatically default win, so we're going to give you twice as much as the award. So I worked out a payment plan with them yeah. a little bit, um, but because the money was being stolen at the same time, like it, it kind of took a while Bad to times. figure it out. Yeah. It was all that stuff was kind of happening at the same time. I had been robbed. I was being sued. I didn't have a job. I was living by myself, you know. Um, but, you, but you're crawling out of the wreckage. I crawled out of it, yeah. Did you have a girl? I had a girlfriend at the time who was also very depressed. Great. <laughs> and a huge pothead, so I started smoking weed a lot. Yeah, perfect. But smoking weed from the depressed place isn't the healthiest. No. They could just send you further down that hole. No, everything slows down. Oh, yeah. So it's like, oh, I'm depressed, but now it's going to last for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, man. Turn yeah. on the television. Yeah, like I'm living inside a pillow. And that's what it was. So, And then I started to crawl my way out of that little by little and started to put some stuff together, and it's kind of like... It took four-ish years. Luckily, being employed on the Netflix show, Grace and Frankie, helped get me out of the financial hole. Yeah, and that must be amazing. You still didn't, you didn't land me Lily, but you got you here. I have <laughs> tried and tried. I know, uh, we're, we're trying too. I don't quite understand it, but I, you know, the, you, people get to a certain age, you're like, do I need to do that? <laughs> you know, but also it's like, I think that she also like, she's just not as connected to phones and emails. As we are. She's well, the what's generation. Like working with them, with Jane and uh, Fonda and Lily, uh, Tomlin and Martin Sheen. I mean, that must like they. this is really your first, in a sense, you know, although working with Alfre Woodward when you were a kid is one thing, but now you're a regular on a show with these legends. Um, it's got to be kind of astounding. Yeah. In, in, for, for better and worse. Yeah. They're, they're, they're pretty amazing. Um, you know, 
to be around. Lily is a hero of mine as well. Like I watched laughing when I was a young sure. and a young one ringy dingy. Oh man. She, <laughs> she did that character. I was telling her how much I loved Ernestine is the name of that character. And then she like did the snort laugh yeah. and I almost cried. Yeah. I was like, Oh, that was I really she, important to me. She goes out and sort of, uh, still does one woman shows. Yeah. Curates like a greatest hits type of thing. Yeah. I think she does. Like, yeah, She's got shows coming up. Yeah. Like, cause she was at a, some theater that I was at, uh, you know, before me or coming up. And I think she does a mixture of, of film footage and, and live things. And I get it, work You play theaters. All right. No, no, no. I was just like, I always wonder what they're doing. I'm just messing around. I know. <laughs> you know, like, because I, I, like, does she just do a straight stage show like she used to? But I think she actually does sort of a retrospective. Yeah, I haven't gotten to see it yet. You know, it's funny, too, because we had a talk once because I asked her about, like, kind of her path in Hollywood and all that stuff. And she was telling me when she got off laughing and she did a bunch of like specials on, I think it was like ABC and CBS. Yeah. Because it was variety like, that's shows. how you got, yeah, variety shows. That's how you got your own sketch show. She did, she did Richard Pryor's show. Her, yes, exactly. And then she had Richard Pryor on her show as yeah. well. Um, but she said that like a lot of the people that were in her generation, like that were in laughing, they all had to go do Hollywood squares. Yeah. And the match game. Well, that's what was available. Now we have our own versions of that. Kind exactly. Of. But she said that for her, she could go on the road. Yeah. So she didn't get oversaturated. Right. So that was that was like her saving grace is that she could always go on the road. And she did real acting too at some yes. point. Like I think she did some Altman movies, didn't she? I yeah. Nashville. Remember. Right. She got an Oscar nomination, I think. And she was also in uh, the other one, um, Shortcuts. She was great. Yes. She, oh, Love God. shortcuts. With Tom Waits. Her oh, yeah. Tom Waits. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's great stuff. Yeah, and Jane, it's it's good to know that- Real pros, I, huh? I can hold my own sure. with them. But you can also see the history that they come from. It's yes. interesting working with older actors- yes. Where you're like, who have like been, th- like done the big stuff. Yeah. And they, they carry that with them. There There is a sort of respect and a, a weird- uh, quirkiness it, to them, I imagine. It's also that they were on sets before cell phones, so it's like now on a set when there's it's you're in between a shot, people will go look at their phone or look yeah. at their computer, but they talk to each other. Right. They still like like oh, did you read the thing about the stuff? Mm-hmm. And then they have a conversation. It's like oh, this is how you can be. Yeah. You can actually have a conversation and get to know the people you're working with instead of like all right, bye. Be a community. What What did Twitter say? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's well, that's a good lesson to learn. Definitely. Yeah. So that's going well for you, yeah. And now you got you you got cast in the, uh, the remake of a show that you were a fan of as a child. Yes, with Joel Hodgson's. Wait, when's that going to go? The MST three thousand reboot, April fourteenth. Hmm. It comes out. It's just like pretty much like the old one, right? Yeah, yeah. It's me and Jonah Ray and Hampton Yunt, and uh, I'm the voice of Tom Servo. Hampton is Crow, and Jonah's playing a version of himself right the guy who's imprisoned on the ship and it's it's a it's a tribute to the originals but we've updated it you know kind of made it more modern it looks completely different and joel's doing it yeah and joel's at the joel's at the helm how's he doing he's doing great man he's a really cool dude like he's super relaxed he's very very zen great to work with he's great to riff with yeah he was a comic way yeah. back, and uh, you know it was not. We actually were talking about you recently too. I think day. he might come on. Yeah, he was. That's why I think we were talking about you. So, but now let's get full circle here. Yeah. Now, when do you decide that you gotta, you know, seek your dad out? I mean, it's a combination of things, man. You know, like like I said, like working on myself, uh-huh. going to therapy and stuff like that, and seeing how much of my identity 
is grown out of not having a man around to show me what being a man is. Not that that will get you everything in the world, but that's the hole that I was always trying to fill in some sort of way and also feeling like I can't feel, fill it. I'm not manly or also internalizing the idea that this deep male shame I have about like, well, men, what do men do? They hurt my mom, they hurt my grandma, and they start all the wars. And I'm one, and kind of believing deep down in some way that I can only disappoint Well, that's people. interesting, because some uh, other people go different direction with that. There are yeah. some people that have absent fathers that go out and just overcompensate the shit out of everything. Right, and I undercompensate. Right, them. right. I guess it's the, <laughs> other, the other direction. Yeah, I went sort of the more internal hatred, self-loathing yeah, yeah. direction. And so- that's the kind of stuff that it doesn't serve me anymore. It doesn't help me out. So when you started identifying all this stuff in mm -hmm. therapy, do you think that that you were going to get closure by meeting this man? Not necessarily because I don't know that there is a closure to have because the events uh, surrounding- You're already wired. They, yeah. You're, I'm already who I am. Yeah. And also whatever happened already happened. Right. It's more that- I've never known what happened. I've never been told a version of the story. And you kind of want to look him in the eye, right? Yeah, and I wanted to see, not only hear it from my mom, because this is the first time my mom ever told me what happened around the the circumstances around my birth. Like she doesn't talk about it because it's painful for her. Uh -huh. But luckily, you know, she's come a far way as well and sees that like, oh, I, you know, I've healed a lot and let go of this stuff, so it was really good experience for and her. And you can handle it now? And I can handle it like I'm not going to go crazy. Right. And he's like a guy I know. Now, you know. Who? My dad. So where do you go find him? How'd you find him? Um, combination of things. I mean, making this documentary was the excuse I gave myself. Yeah. Because I probably wouldn't have done it, even though I knew I needed to. Uh-huh. But kind of making it a thing where I, I had to answer to some people, and there yeah. was an expectation and some deadlines. Sure, sure, yeah. I, like, forced myself into a position yeah, of yeah. having to do it. Yeah, Having yeah. no idea how I was going to feel. Right. And so- um, he, uh, is in Albuquerque, of course. Is he? Yeah. He's from Albuquerque. Your dad is? Yes. Uh-huh. So he lives in Albuquerque. That's where I met him. So like, you, you, well, that's fortunate for the doc and budgetary reasons. Yes. You, the drive from Tucumcari to Albuquerque is not that big of a deal. We went Portales, Tucumcari, and Albuquerque. So what do you know about him before you meet him? Nothing. But you know where he works or where you- No. You, what was the first, uh, communication? First communication was a week before we met. I called him on the phone. I had a private investigator track him down. Okay. Um, because I, you know, I had seen a picture of him when I was a kid, didn't remember what he looked like. I remember what his name was. Uh -huh. The private investigator found him pretty quickly. I'm telling you like an hour after we talked. He's like, well, I found the guy and I uh, called him and he said he's uh, aware of your existence and he would love to talk to you. I'm like, what? That's, I wasn't expecting that. So... We talked on the phone, you know, and um, it was probably about a month. I called him and left a message, and then he called me back, and it was probably about a month after that that I called him back, mm -hmm. where I was busy, busy, quote-unquote, but also- Freaking out. I was freaking out a little bit, yeah. and I also didn't know- I started asking myself, like, what do I actually want out right, of this? Right, right, yeah, What yeah. am I going to get? What's this going to be like? Am I okay? Am yeah. I going to be okay? Yeah. And so, called him, we talked briefly. He was a really relaxed guy. He even told me some of the things that, like, I wasn't expecting to hear just about, like, who he was. Because that's, I was more, I'm more curious about who he is as a person. Yeah. Because, look, here's how I look at it, Mark. Um, my mom and my father 
did the best they could in the circumstances they found themselves in. So I was curious about what are the circumstances? What, who raised you? I guess. Who raised you to make this be the only decision that you can make in this moment? Okay, I, I mean, I hear that. I, I would argue that it was not the best they could. It's what they did. But those other questions you were asking, I think, are valid. And what they did is the best they could. The best doesn't mean it's good. It just means that, like, that's as much as they can do. That's as much as they can handle. Fine. <laughs> Let's mince words. Let's get into it. No, but no, no, this is just my approach to that. Like, you know, because I think that's what we do to make, you know, to sort of, like, detach from it without it being too horrible for us to say they did the best they could but they did what they did well i'm saying they did the best they sure could. no i know I've, I've said it too but i've I, i've redacted that yeah well <laughs> well and that's fine I'm, i I guess uh, semantics but like i'm i'm saying like yeah they did what they did yeah nothing else happened that's right that's, that's the right. only thing that happened they did what they knew they had to they did what they well, they the, did what they could <laughs> yeah they did what they could yeah with the background that they had with the background okay. that their parents had, sure. whatever expectations were heaped on All their right. shoulders. So yeah, getting around that. So yeah. what did you find out about your old man? Like, was he contrite? Um, what do you mean contrite? I mean, was he, did he feel remorse? Yeah, he has some remorse, you know, he said like, you know, I missed out, you know, I made these mistakes. I made these decisions. It's what I did, you know, but like now we have an opportunity to, you know, to, to, to know each other. Was he financially present? Uh, in During, my life? Yeah. No. Nobody was. Right. My mom was on her own. So what was his story? So you, so you get on the phone with him, you have this first conversation, it's mm -hmm. better than you thought. Yeah. And when you sit down with him, do you? what happens? Uh, apparently one of the first things I asked was who he liked as a comedian. Was this on tape? Yeah, it's on the doc. It's on okay. the doc. Okay, okay. So anybody who wants to see it, Fatherless <laughs> is the name of the doc. Is it on iTunes? Uh, it'll be out in Fusion. Okay. Um. So yeah, we sat down and- Again, I was interested in, in just kind of knowing what he's into, you know, and how he thinks. Yeah. Um, and how he's absorbed this whole thing into his own life mm -hmm. and what it makes him today. Who was his favorite comedian? Uh, well, he actually named Pryor and Red Fox and, and Mom's Babely. So I was like, okay, we can talk. <laughs> <laughs> we can talk. Um, Did you cry? No, I didn't cry. I'm not a, I'm not a big crier. Why is that? Where, I, where you, what, are you, what are you holding back, buddy? Yeah, yeah. I've been asking myself that exact thing. Like, it's, it's really hard for me to cry. I think there's there's a self-consciousness about it. Um, I also, I kind of shut down is more I more dissociate. Mm -hmm. So when the feelings start to get too overwhelming, I just kind of go, the whole thing kind of turns off. Oh, really? I yell. I know. I know. It can be scary. Uh -huh. I'm, I'm fortunate to have never been on the uh -huh. other end of that, right. for real. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've been hidden it. Um, I'm better now. That's true. Yeah. No, I've listened, list, literally listening to you get better as yeah. a person listening to this podcast. Uh, so, oh, but but it's interesting though. So, well, what answers did you get? What did you come away with? I know it's in the doc, and people should watch it. But I mean, do you did you find some peace? Yeah, peace is peace is the the word, not closure, right? But peace, right? Because I wanted to understand what happened. And what happened? It's that, again, they're young, they were young, and they were scared. Mm. It's as simple as that. I don't actually need to know all of it because people get scared. And when people get scared, they do, they do dumb things, they make bad decisions, they make fear decisions, mm. and they run 
or they shut down or they come up with all sorts of stories to justify what they're about to do. And that's fine. It sucks, you know, if, if you're caught in the middle of all that stuff. But that's how people work. You know, we're all just trying to, like, get to the next thing and Do not you have, feel too badly. Right. Do you have siblings you didn't know about? Yes. How's that? Um, I've only met one of them. There's four of them. Mm. Um, and he said he's slowly telling the family about me. Uh, I was in Albuquerque in December and I ended up meeting up with him. And one of my little brothers had just heard about me two days before that and wanted to meet me. So he came to the lunch as well. How was that? It was fine. That's wild. There's no other way to describe him except that he was a solid young man. Like he had just gotten out of college. Uh He already had a job like less than a month out of school. What's your old man do? He's retired. Uh He's a military guy. Oh, yeah. He's an army guy. So now do do you feel that this is going to be an ongoing relationship? Yeah. Oh, good. It's still, I don't call him dad. Right. To his face, right? It's still weird sure. to say it, right? Like my, like it's yeah, like I yeah. never said it. And can you do the my biological father? My thing? biological father, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I do say father, yeah, a lot, right? Which but you don't call him dad, yeah, right? Not yet, sure. Who knows, right? Because it's like we're, he's a guy I'm getting to know, all right. As opposed to uh, his feelings, like right, right. What he thinks of me is really important. Like I didn't grow up with him, so no anger. Um. Not really. I don't. I don't see any use for it. All right. The anger's gone. Mm-hmm. The anger is already passed. Wow. From a long time ago. Good for you. Thank God, right? I guess. <laughs> Quite a trick. That's a. But you know what? That's an interesting. A lot of people ask me that. Are you angry? You know, like, do you? Oh, do you want to? You want to punch him in his face? I'm like, I don't really know what I'm supposed to do from that because I even when I talked to him I was like look I think you know it might be it might be easier to maintain anger you know when they're shitty but are in your life yes that, like you know this was the transgression was that he left yeah so you can only be angry about one thing in a way I was angry at the concept of right. men <laughs> and being one at the same time the concept of of men right of dads right you know but for someone who has to live through their dad's shit you know Year after year, day after day, that anger is probably always a little close to the surface. It's a but, simmer. But the absencing, it's yep. like, you know, you're mad because he wasn't there. So, like, on some level, you got spared a lot of the shit that could have been really bad. Exactly. See, that's a big point that I've made. A lot of people are always like, how can a man leave? Yeah. And I'm like, you know what? A lot of dudes are right. Like, some of them are like, I can't handle this. Yeah. And they leave. And that's probably a good choice because they might have been shitty, abusive people yeah, if they the stayed present. Who you knows? never know. Right. It's a crapshoot. Yeah. Well, a lot of things going on, buddy. I'm doing it to it. You made it out of the hole. Gotta. All right. Good talking to you, Baron. All right. Well, that's it. That's me and Baron and me and Moshe. And uh, that's our show for today. I don't think I've ever closed like that. Go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF pod needs. I got a lot of posters still. A lot of Carnegie posters. I got, yeah, I got all kinds of posters. And also my tour dates are there for the upcoming uh, six or seven dates I have left on this tour. So if any of that interests you, get on the mailing list. I'll mail you something every week. I'm about to go write that now. But maybe I should play some guitar first. I've been listening to a, uh, African music anthology of some kind. I think it's leaked into my head.
Elmer lives.